Hey everyone, and welcome back to Citywide Blackout, your home for music, movies, and more. I'm your host, Max Bowen. Kicking off this episode, Dr. Jess Wright makes the move from renowned psychiatrist to novelist with his new book, A Stream to Follow. This book explores the heart and mind of Bruce Duncan, a World War II battlefield surgeon, as he adjusts to life after the conflict's end. But for Bruce, the battle is far from over. Dr. Wright and I talk about the creation of Duncan and how his own relatives who served in World War II helped to shape the story. We talk about mental health in the 1940s and how difficult it was for anyone, especially men, to talk about it. Dr. Wright also looks at his years of writing medical books and the challenges he faced when it comes to penning a fiction novel. I'm doing good because my next guest, we have a great book to talk about. It's called A Stream to Follow, recently released through Spark Press. Dr. Jess Wright joins me. Dr. Wright, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Uh, It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Now, this book, I want to start a bit with your own background. Now, this is not your first book. You have written several others, but these have all been like medical books. This being your first work of fiction. I'm curious what made you want to do this. I've asked myself that question many times uh, because it is a big transition. I've had a fair amount of experience in writing medical books. I think there are eight of them now or so. Self-help books, uh, book textbooks, books for doctors and nurses and psychologists, therapists. uh, And we've had some pretty good success with them. And I've written all kinds of scientific papers because I'm a researcher and uh, a psychiatrist at the University of Louisville where I direct the depression center. So my day job, I guess, is uh, being a, a physician, scientist, lecturer, writer, and so forth. And I, I always had the itch to write some fiction. Wanted to do it really for decades. As I think back about this, I believe my English teacher in my first year of, of college would roll over in whatever grave he's in now. I think he must be there by now because I've got a little age on me. If he learned that I had written anything close to fiction even scientific articles. So somehow or another, this has popped out of me. Uh, I guess it was percolating for a, for a time. And um, I've had some personal experiences with trauma. And the main character in this, in this story does experience trauma. And it's a story of recovery from trauma, of healing. And I spent a lot of my career trying to help people recover from bad things that have happened to them. And this is uh, what the story's about. And there was also, a, I guess, a, tr- a track back into my early childhood. I was a kid right after World War II, both my father and my uncle. And by the way, my uncle just lived a block away from us, so we were all like a close family uh, back in the days when those kind of things happened. And both of them served in World War II, and they were those soldiers that suffered in silence, never said a word. And my dad died young, I, I, I think, in part because of the emotional wounds of the war. Uh, which uh, I think haunted him. And uh, I never heard a word from him in, uh, ever in his life. And my uncle, who flew the fighter planes over the channel from England into France and Germany, saw terrible attrition in, in his buddies. Most of them never made it back to the United States. Uh, he didn't say a word until he was diagnosed with lung cancer. And then one afternoon in his garden, it just all spilled out. And I think it affected me a lot. And I, I guess if I thought of a story I wanted to write. I've been always fascinated with World War II era and thought I could write something that would tell maybe a better story about healing and recovery than happened to my own family. Okay. All right. 
Wow. So there's a so there's like a lot of like personal connections here. Like you said, uh, your family, your upbringing. I like to start with your with your family. So um, as you mentioned, your dad and uncle both uh, uh, both served in World War II, which is where this book is set. How did that kind of influence the story? Did you, were you able to kind of like use their like personal stories to kind of shape things? For the most part, uh, I didn't try to make this autobiographical or a generation removed, if you will, and write a story that would tell their life in a different way. Um, there is a character that's a fighter pilot, so perhaps some of that came from my experience with my uncle. But I was really influenced by a book that I would recommend to your readers called The Other Side of Time that was written right after World War II by a surgeon that served in World War II and saw just brutal action. The name of the surgeon is Brendan Phibbs, P-H-I-B-B-S. And it's, it's beautifully written, just brilliant. And I read that thing. I was trying to do research for telling a story about a physician in World War II and what it was like for doctors. And I realized this was an untold story of brave physicians and nurses and corpsmen that served in conditions that are somewhat different than today because they were right at the front line. Brendan Phibbs, by the way, was just a fresh medical school graduate, was not a trained surgeon. They put him in a crash course uh, right after med school and then sent him into the heat of battle. And he was right on the front lines and saw this. It's almost indescribable things that he saw. I try to describe it in the book. So I use that as a model for a main character named Bruce Duncan, who's a surgeon and then comes back to the United States and tries to regroup, uh, find a way in life. Find, I guess you would say, a stream to follow, which is the title of the book. And there are some flashbacks back to some of the things that happened during the war. Okay. All right. So let's dive a bit into the story. Bruce Duncan's the main character. He is a, he is a battlefield surgeon during World War II, trying to sort of just kind of get his life back on track. He um, he comes home to a small town in Pennsylvania, opens a practice, but he still carries a lot of the scars of what he saw, you know, his own uh, near-death experiences and a lost love. So he's obviously got a lot of work to do before he can kind of get back on track, basically. What are some of the things that Bruce deals with, especially in his early days, just returning from the war? I, I think there's a fair amount of melancholy. Oh, this character is a pretty determined guy. I guess like my dad and my uncle, a fellow that didn't say much about it, he wasn't... Uh, uh, bleeding emotionally all over the place. He was trying to put on a show that everything was okay, but yet inside there was a lot of lament, uh, as you mentioned, for some of the things that happened to buddies he lost, to scenes he personally experienced, to near-death experiences that he had, and to uh, a really tragic uh, love story, in a way. Uh, my wife jokes that at the heart of this book, it is a love story, but you have to read it to find out what happens to the love story. It doesn't sound like a love story, but I'll take your word for it. Yeah, it, it does sound like it's pretty tough, you know, a lot of battle and emotional mm. wounds. But um, one of the messages is that relationships and uh, loving commitments and uh, tenderness can have a healing power in our lives if we can find that with someone that we can talk with that we can relate to and can experience some of the things that we've experienced that have been traumatic in our past. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Now, of course, uh, mental health has come a long way since the 1940s. But what was it like for someone dealing with that kind of like PTSD and trauma? Like, did like that even exist back then? Mm-hmm. Well, PTSD, as we know it now, was not labeled as such until the Vietnam War. But it was known thousands of years before the birth of Christ, back in Mesopotamia, at least to 3000 BC. Descriptions of the same kinds of symptoms that people that came come back from wars now have, or that experience sexual traumas or uh, a, a terrible car accident with loss of life or near loss of life. So the same symptoms have been there since the beginning of written the written word. And in the Civil War, it was called something different. It was called the soldier's heart. I was trying to figure out what that meant. I guess it meant there was something in, in their heart that wasn't quite right. It wasn't a physical wound. It was an emotional wound. And then in uh, World War One, it was called shell shock because that was the first war where they were really bombarded with the men were in the trenches and just one shell after the other coming after them. And then in World War Two, it was called combat fatigue. So in World War Two, the main treatment was uh, if you were lucky, you were given a bit of respite for a day or two away from the lines and then sent right back. The, the idea was suck it up and get to it, which in a way is it's not that tough with trying to treat PTSD today. But one has to eventually confront one's fears and break through the avoidance that you might have of not wanting to see the images or pictures or the memories. So that is something that's done in, in current treatment. And I expect also, like, for men back, uh, back then, just being emotional just wasn't really allowed. You were supposed to, like, you know, like you said, tough it up, suck it up, you know, be a man, et cetera. Yeah, you got it. That's not quite gone away either, I would say. Yeah, pretty I, much. I'm a, I'm a practicing psychiatrist, and I see plenty of men in my practice. And I, I just saw a fellow for the first time today, and he came in, and he was he couldn't quite figure out what was troubling him. His wife and his daughter both said he needed to come in for treatment, and he couldn't really get in touch with the emotions. To him, everything was okay. It was just that they, they didn't understand him. Uh, but we, we have some work to do, I think. Yeah. So, uh, the, the lack of expression of emotion led to all kinds of symptoms, including drinking way too much, you know, covering it over. So let's talk about uh, world building. You know, uh, of course, this is your, uh, this is your first fiction book and world building is a huge part of it, even if it's, you know, set in like real life. But um, what kind of work did you have to do to kind of create the scenes? Did you like already know a lot about World War II to, enough to write the book? A uh, fair amount of research. I've, I've been I've been reading about World War II for a long time. Uh, even waded through and Winston Churchill's entire history of World War II and many other books. So it wasn't that it, I was naive to the whole experience of that time. Uh, but it did take a fair amount of research, particularly about what the life was like for medical personnel during the war. Um, so I, I probably read for six months, eight months before I even put a word down on the page and then spent a fair amount of time with an outline trying to figure out what the plot might be. Uh, wrote a draft and wasn't too pleased with it. And I was able to then secure a excellent coach who helped me prune it, tighten it, get it ready to go out to an agent and find a publisher. So it took a fair amount of time. I've, I've learned a bit along the way. That writing fiction is very different than med- my medical writing. Uh, but uh, I think I'm, I hope I'm getting a little bit better at it. I finished the second one that's now 
uh, my agent has it, and we're trying to find a publisher for that, and I'm working on a third one. So I'm uh, sticking with it. Clearly, clearly, yeah. The research I found when it, when it comes to writers is like the best slash worst part because you get to do all kinds of research, read all kinds of cool things. The alternative, the the uh, the other side of it though is that it'll be like months later you'll think, oh my god, I should probably write something now. Yeah, research can be good and it can have its downside. Particularly, it can breed procrastination. <laughs> Every because time, you, you could say, "Gee, I don't know enough yet." to start writing something. I need to check this one more book or one more reference and you could be doing this for years. <laughs> so as a psychiatrist, I've, I've uh, seen a few, <laughs> few people that have a problem with procrastination. And early in my life as a writer, back when I was learning how to do scientific writing, I had huge procrastination. I, I remember my first scientific paper after I finished my residency at the University of Michigan. It must have taken me two years and I don't know how many drafts and much gnashing of teeth and many false starts before I finally got the paper done. And then I was terrified to, to send it off to a journal because I was sure it was going to get rejected. So uh, it, it took a while to get past that, just sticking with it, reading about writing, reading other people that uh, have had experiences and what they've learned along the way and trying to get a little discipline to stick with it. Which so one of the things I've learned about procrastination is that if you can get yourself a schedule and carve out time and say, okay, I'm going to devote this amount of time to it, whether it might be Saturday, a, a Sunday afternoon for four hours or whatever it might be in the beginning, and then saying, okay, I'm going to write. And if nothing comes out, that's okay. If I, if, if I work at it, that's fine. And then something is going to come. And that's been the case for me. You definitely can't force creativity. You can't say, okay, I'm going to write, you know, an hour a day and it's going to be awesome. And sometimes you're going to be like just sitting in front of the computer screen thinking, I've got nothing. Okay. going to go for a walk instead. Yeah, that's what that, you're right. That's the way it is. So you have to be ready for those uh, quiet times or those uh, dull times. And then sometimes it just flows. Yeah. Another thing I've learned, uh, and I've seen this, uh, I'm a, I'm a really uh, avid gardener. I've been uh, gardening for a long time. I love to it. I read about it, read about the history of it. And there's a garden in England called Sissinghurst that some of your listeners may have heard of or you may have heard of. It's a famous garden. It's on the national uh, tours. And that was developed by two very interesting people, Harold Nicholson and Vita Sackville-West. And Vita Sackville-West was a well-known poet, a real bohemian, really loose around the edges. And Nicholson was like a military precise engineer type guy. And so Nicholson built the structures for the garden all the paths and the hedges and so forth. And then Vita Sackville West planted all that with all this abandon of, of flowers and plants that is uh, pretty wild when you see it. So it works. So I, I've sort of picked up on that, that having a structure like an outline. And so you have some idea where you're going, uh, but yet you let it flow within those structures seems to work pretty well, at least for me. Mm -hmm. Now I'm curious about what your initial draft looked like versus the final draft. Uh, well, it had about five more characters than the final draft. What happened to them? Uh, I, I, oh, was, I was overly ambitious. Uh, <laughs> one of the ideas I had when starting to write as a psychiatrist transitioning to a novelist was that while I spent my career learning about people, listening to all kinds of stories, trying to help people with, you can't imagine the stories I've heard. So maybe I know a little bit about people and I could perhaps develop character. So I, maybe I developed too many characters. 
So my my advisor said, gee, you know, this is an interesting plot, but it's your people are going to get lost in it. So pare it down. Mm. So that, that took uh, a while to do that kind of editing. Yeah. Had to be uh, very ruthless with the editing. <laughs> One of the problems is you write something down, you don't want to lose it. As you, you know, you spent days writing a chapter, a passage, you say, oh, gee, I got to get rid of that. Yeah. I, I think I, I think that, that like that's the hardest part though is when you have a chapter or a character or a scene that for you is like precious, but your editor's like, Nope, it's gotta go, it's not helping anything, toss it. That's it, yeah. It's 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 a tough one, but they're I think they're usually right. Oh yeah. I'm not exactly. sure universally. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> for the most part. For the most accepted. part. Yeah. Taking out those five characters, did that really drastically change the story? Uh, not the total flow of the story. The main characters remain. These were minor characters. Um, so I was able to retain most of it. And actually I took some of the pieces that other characters had and brought them into, gave them to characters that were retained in the book. So I was able to carry most of the story. It cut down a number of words, but, uh, it went from, uh, I think, uh, around 110,000 words, which was too many down at about 20,000 cut off that. Wow, that's uh, quite the reduction. So that was that was that was some that was some pruning. That was a lot of pruning. <laughs> that's a whole lot of pruning. Hey, yeah. <laughs> you're a gardener. Yeah. You 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 know what it's all about. Yeah, you have to prune to make things grow. Exactly, exactly. I've always found it interesting because, like, there's a, there's 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 a saying. I can't remember where I read it, but if you want to get into the mind of a writer, it's not just about what they have on the page; it's what they've taken off of it. And I'm always curious to see what like original drafts look like and how the story can be so so different. Um, you know, we talked a bit earlier about um, you know precious parts of the story. In working with your coach, did you ever have a moment where you were like, "Nope, I won't take this out. It's essential. It's got to stay." Uh, I didn't do that. Fair I, enough. I might have more confidence to do it now, <laughs> but uh, in the beginning, I thought, "Gee, this guy's been a New York Times best-selling author. He probably knows what he's doing." Uh, and he does know what he's doing. And I think his, his advice was very wise. So I, I followed it. What would you say was the best piece of advice that they gave you? Well, I'd say what I learned from the first book was spend more time on plot before you get started. And so for the second book, I thought I had the plot worked out better. I had to tidy up the plot so it didn't meander too much. Mm. So I, I increased the amount of suspense, which uh, took some work and rewriting. I want to talk a little more about your uh, your uh, professional experience, which I'm sure if we went through the whole resume, we'd be here all day long. You're a professor of, of uh, psychiatry at the University of, of uh, Louisville. You've worked on a number of books over the years dealing with um, depression, anxiety, many other things. How did this kind of background really assist you when it came to getting to the heads of your own characters? I think that's a, an excellent point, and I, I hope it did. I've, I've been a devotee of cognitive behavior therapy, which some of your listeners may know about. Sometimes it's called CBT. When I started with it, which was back in the late 70s, which dates me, uh, but I was I was a very young physician back then. Uh, and uh, it was it was not used much. There hardly anybody knew anything about it. And I began to work with the fellow that developed it, Aaron Beck, who just died, by the way, this year at age 100, had a very influential career. So the therapy, which got started really from not much, ended up being the most heavily researched psychotherapy anywhere in the world. And it's used across all corners of the world, a very influential therapy. 
and it uh, is pretty practical down to earth. But what it does is it digs into the way people think, their classic thinking styles. So when people get depressed, they typically have uh, these patterns of self-condemnation, criticizing oneself. If you could, if you could listen into their inner thoughts, which in cognitive therapy we call automatic thoughts because they, they have an automatic kind of quality. They're just rattling along in your brain all day long. It's a litany of despair, self-criticism, doubt, predictions that things aren't going to work out. And so that once a person gets into that style of thinking, it perpetuates this, this sad mood and all the behavioral things that go along with depression, like procrastinating, uh, getting up in the morning and not getting to work because you don't think you can make it. You just don't feel like you have enough energy or gumption to do it. And even at the worst, getting to the point of self-destructive kinds of thoughts of committing suicide or thinking of suicide. In the book, I try to get inside the heads of people, not just what they say to others, but what they're thinking. And uh, uh, other novelists have done that. You don't have to be a cognitive behavior therapist to, to do that. But having listened to those inner thoughts of people for many years, uh, I tried to put that into the book. So the main characters, particularly, you'll hear them talking their thoughts out loud. I want to ask about the other characters in this book. So it's not it's not just Bruce, of course, uh, a friend uh, from the war. Um, he has a potential, a potential uh, love life also. As making these characters, did you like base them off of folks you knew or folks that maybe like your family knew? Uh, not really. Uh, my family who's read it thinks that one of the humorous characters, a minor character, was based on an aunt of mine who was uh, quite a card. Uh, she was very irreverent and uh, could come up with a good crack on almost anything. So there is a character that does that, but but she's a minor character. The other ones were pretty much made up, uh, maybe an amalgam of people that I've known through my life, uh, but 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 not based on particular family members or other people that I that I've known. As the book progresses, you know, we're following Bruce's journey, dealing with what he's dealt with in the war. Are we sort of in his head a lot, or is it more of like a third party observer? It's both. There, there. The book is not written in the first person. It's written from the point of view of an observer, but there are times when uh, Bruce and some of the other major characters, Amelia, the woman that, that jilted him terribly during the war and comes back into the picture, maybe, maybe not. Uh, Sarah, who's a woman doctor, was very unusual in those days, comes to the village where he practices. Uh, those three characters were able to go inside their head and, and hear what they say. Okay. The minor characters, we don't allow them that privilege. Gotcha. All right. All right. Um, all right. You know, something I just kind of thought of, uh, we talked a lot about uh, the stress the soldiers went through, PTSD. Was it really different for the medics than for the, than for the soldiers? Was it like an entirely different set of issues? The, the medics during World War II were very close to the combat soldiers in, in regard to their experiences being on the battlefield. The ambulances were, the Red Cross were target practice for the Germans. Uh, there was very little respect of a medic that would go out into the field to try to bring back an injured soldier. Very little respect for a field hospital with a Red Cross on the top, vomit like anything else. So the, and, and sometimes the soldiers, and there's a chapter in the book where Bruce and the other soldiers, the doctors 
have to fight. They're given bazookas and machine guns because the town is being overrun. So they have no choice but to fight. So they have a lot of that experience. But the thing that, that uh, they see that perhaps the regular soldier didn't see was the gory devastation of the wounds and trying to help soldiers who were dying or those that had wounds like, uh, well, a terrible groin wound groin wound, for example, in a young guy. You can imagine what that might be like for a person to realize that their privates have been shot off. And uh, soldiers saw that, these these doctors, and had to somehow comfort or work with the soldiers that were with them. So it's it was somewhat different, but the same. So how does it feel to have your first fiction book now out there for the whole world to see? Well, it's, it's good. I'm glad to have it out there. Uh, we had a great book signing in Louisville at an independent bookstore and had a standing room only crowd. So that felt great because when you write, you're doing it in isolation. Uh, I would occasionally, my wife would say, are you still alive up there in my study? Uh, (laughs) Because I would end up being sometimes spending six, eight hours on a day when I had off to write. Uh, But I would be doing that on my own occasionally talking about it with somebody. I finally got the coach I mentioned to you, which is really great. Uh, I had a little advice from some people that I know that are literature professors and so forth. But it's mostly you're in it and you have no idea whether this thing is any good or not, whether anybody's ever going to read it, whether it ever get published. So you have to have a bit of, uh, I guess, maybe naivete or confidence or optimism or something or just dogged persistence. Uh, because the chances of things working out are not that great. <laughs> yeah, and then and think then, about trying to get a novel into print. Yeah, exactly. And then you're just like you're just like up in your study, surrounded by like towers and towers of like unsold books, wondering what the hell have I done with my life. Yeah, and uh, there are very few authors that are like John Grisham's, or uh, uh, one of the others that makes millions of dollars. I, th- I think that the uh, I heard a factor that uh, some some statistics that. The average full-time fiction writer has an average salary of twenty thousand a year. So I thought it's, it's best that this is not my full-time profession. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Well, <laughs> although of course some of them do very well. Exactly. So I have hopes that, that exactly. a lot of people. I hope hope that your listeners will pick up this book and read it. I think it's a great book and <laughs> it's very enjoyable. It's been described as uplifting and uh, inspiring and heartwarming. Hmm. In addition to all the things I've talked about about trauma, yeah. so I try to make it an enjoyable read. That thing that I would like to read myself. Mm-hmm. I like the fact, though, that you had the standing room only book sign. That's a really, really good start. Well, it seemed to be, but then again, you never know. Now I have to. I'm at the mercy of Amazon and Barnes and Noble and independent bookstores all over the world, and find people like you who want to talk to me about the book. And so I certainly appreciate it. <laughs> of course, of course. All right. Um, I'm curious if you've heard from veterans or other folks in your field to kind of get their like feedback on, you know, the characters or the psychology of the character. Uh, I, I'm hoping to have more feedback from vets. I'm a vet myself, so I can give myself some feedback. I didn't mention that I was in the military right after Vietnam and, and treated a lot of people that came back from that war and had PTSD. I didn't see combat myself. Uh, and I have other friends that have served in the military who've taken a look at it. Uh, I have another psychiatrist friend who read it and really loved the book and thought it was very authentic with his experience. So that was good feedback. 
but I'm waiting for more. So uh, listeners, uh, read it and review it and give me some feedback. I have a website uh, that you can get to me at JustRightMD, and you can send me notes on that, and I'd be glad to respond to you. I, I will respond to emails. Exactly, exactly. F- folks, leave reviews. They can be a star review, a, a comment, a big old like, thumbs up. You know, email the author because all that kind of stuff helps them. Let's talk about about next books. You mentioned a second one's done, a third one's on the way. Will these tackle similar subjects? Uh, I guess the answer is a little bit because as a psychiatrist, they always tell you to write about something you know something about. So since I know a bit about mental health, I've chosen another topic that has something to do with psychiatry, but it's a very different take on it. Uh, the title, the draft title is Dance in a Madhouse. And uh, you might wonder where that comes from. It turns out that there's a famous painting by George Bellows that was done in about 1905 that's titled Dance in a Madhouse and is in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And there are copies, lithographs and other in other museums. And what Bellows captured was uh, a practice at the time of inviting the population of the town, often the well-to-do people, the society folks, into the mental hospital to observe a dance of the patients. And at those days, the patients stayed for years, maybe their lifetimes. And it was, uh, to me, uh, uh, quite a statement of stigma for mental illness, which still occurs, even though we're not watching mentally ill people dance. But the the title uh, does fit what happens in the book. I I don't want to give the story away because it's really a fascinating story. But I can give you a hint that I got the idea from a really good friend of mine who is a uh, highly acclaimed poet who asked me to write an introduction to her, a, a book of poems called The Cracked Piano. Her name is Margot Stever. And if you happen to read The Cracked Piano, you get an idea of what I might have taken off with in a dance in a madhouse. But it all revolves around a really bright, super guy who has typhoid fever and he becomes delirious and psychotic. And he happens to be the brother of a very famous person. And because of that, he's deep sixth in a mental institution. One of the retreats that they had at those days and basically put away forever and has to use his wits to somehow find a way out of this place. And it becomes uh, in a way, a detective story a psychological thriller and uh, at the end, a uh, heart-wrenching but inspiring story of facing the odds and beating them. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, Dr. Wright, thank you so much for joining me. I really, really appreciate it. Folks, definitely pick up a stream to follow. You can go to com for more information. Follow him on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Again, leave reviews. They, they can be star reviews. They can be written reviews, whatever. But leave reviews, interact with the artist, because this all helps so much. And uh, definitely looking forward to checking this one out and for the next book. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Hey, this is singer-songwriter and mental health advocate Stephanie Mathias. Be sure to check out my single Hero Side, available on all platforms now, and listen to Citywide Blackout, your home for the best indie artists. Picture this. You finished your first book and nailed it. The plot, the characters, all the twists and turns. This one's a winner, and all you need is the right cover. If you've got my art skills, 
This is the part where panic usually sets in. Enter the cover villain, hero to writers everywhere. Founded by noted author Remy Flagg, Cover Villain focuses on composite image covers for science fiction and fantasy writers. Give them the details, and they'll craft a cover using popular trends that everyone will want to see. But wait, you say, I've got ideas of my own. No problem, as Cover Villain loves a good collaboration. As they say, our goal is to put a little villain in every cover we make. Want to know more? Then head to CoverVillain.com and follow them on Facebook and Instagram. In just a little bit, I'll be talking to musician Pearl Cutton, who's been on the show before. This time, she's got two new singles, Change and Far Away. Both are upbeat, catchy tunes, which I gotta say is something we could use a lot of right now. Pearl talks about the stories behind both songs, especially Change, and how it's focused on not being afraid to tear down what you have for something new. These two singles also tie into Pearl's background, and we look at those elements, and why it was so important for her to include them in the songs. And uh, joining me now, well, this name is very familiar to folks who've been longtime listeners. She's been on the show a few times already, and uh, she's back again. Uh, Singer-songwriter Pearl Cutton joins me. She has new singles out, an album on the way. Welcome back. It is so good to have you here. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm always happy to come back to your show. I'm really, really happy that you could invite me again one more time. So I'm, I'm getting used to this. Thanks. And it's been two years now. So I know. It's so about time. <laughs> I, I didn't think it was that long, actually. Like, we were talking about this. I thought, okay, it's been a little, a, a little while. But wow, you're right. Two yeah. years. Because we last had you on for your uh, previous single, You Are Beautiful. And since then, you've got two new ones out. Uh, Change, which was, was released just a, a little while ago. And then Far Away, which was just released. Like This is like just out, hot off the presses, so to speak. And uh, both are really wonderful, wonderful songs. Um, the the vibe of both songs, the sound of them is so just like upbeat and 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 energetic. Um, so the first question I have for you, when it, when it came to the sound of this, how did you go about deciding how you wanted the songs to sound? Oh my goodness, I I think this was just. Um a coincidence uh, of, of how it all started because Anthony and I, the producer, we uh, we agreed that we wanted to make the album uh, eclectic, though the soul was going to be the one having uh, more weight. Uh, it still had to have this uh, continuation of fragments of my soul um, theme on it. And we knew that the, the, the dance part was gonna be part of it, um, but uh, change and uh, far away were like, I think they were like the first demos that we made and they just came instantly last summer, actually. Um, uh, I think it was the first kind of, um, uh, demo that the, the uh, versions that I got from from Anthony, and and I also wrote or made the, the the lyrics and the melody just straight away. So actually, the compositions didn't take long. I think what happened is that we just improved the the production way much better than than the original um, ones along the way, and and. Uh, 
everything just happened so fast with them. So that's how they came about. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Now, I love the story behind change because this song, as the name implies, is all about embracing change, not being afraid to make it. And I'm right myself on the verge of a major, major life change, so I can definitely attest to that. Oh, yeah. You can't be afraid of change. But I'm curious for you if this song came about because of any kind of like real life change that you've been dealing with. Well, you know, I'm going through changes all the time. I think the past couple of years actually have been uh, very dramatic when it comes to change, um, both in, in a positive and negative way. But I mean, I guess in, in, in my life, which is a very uh, spiritual life that I try and, and live, is that um, any kind of change comes with a bit of chaos, even if it's positive. Um, and we need that sometimes. We need to have that kind of chaotic, um, those chaotic moments in our lives for us to be able to invite more growth. And I think that's a theme that I've been going through personally uh, for the last couple of years. And instead of being very afraid of it, or, or, or reacting, uh, you know, rather negatively towards it. I just learned to embrace it because uh, sometimes it was heavy, heavy stuff. But, you know, the more you embrace it, the more it becomes easier to deal with. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that because I think that, you know, change can be scary, especially if it's a major one, like you're moving or you're taking a new job or what have you. But just because it's different doesn't mean it's going to be bad. It's just going to be different. That's it. Okay. Whether or not it's good or bad is something you can only experience by actually doing it. So yeah. as someone myself who has really fought against change for a long time, I can say I definitely suffered for it. And the lesson I took is that, you know what? Change can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing. But you won't know until you get to the other side of that decision. Yeah. So go for it. Have some fun and see what happens. And I hate stagnation. I really hate mm. stagnation. And, yeah, I, and I think that's how the song came about. It's about letting yourself like stare the pot a bit and and get out all the murky stuff that lies beneath everything and let it come out. And then you can look at yourself in the mirror and say, okay, what do I do now? Do I throw this out? Or which path am I taking now? Because uh, otherwise, there is no growth if we don't do that once in a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and certainly, I think the last two years have been really a time of growth for a lot of artists, because even though they couldn't do things like, you know, go play shows or go on tour up until recently, you've seen a lot of artists releasing work. They're still, they were, they were producing whole albums out of their bedrooms and so forth. I'd like to ask you about how the last two years were were for you. Oh, my goodness. I mean, the first year was was amazing. I had I had a, a good time being I was actually living on my own and I had such a good time just relaxing and reflecting and actually working on on the inner side of life you know preparing actually for what is happening now uh subconsciously um and I started doing some some inner work some shadow work within myself and I started the whole passion of, of, of getting into my acting and my dancing. Um, so all of those things kind of came back because I was listening to myself. I had the time to listen to myself again because I had been running and running and running and running, you know, the, 
the the years prior to uh, COVID mm-hmm. is. Yeah, it, it, I think for a lot a lot of folks, it was a time to kind of slow down a bit and sort of like take stock yes. of like where you are. Um, yeah, you talk about the uh, talk about the acting and the dancing, and certainly we see that a lot in your music videos. There are these yeah. very high level productions. Clearly, a lot of thought and planning has gone into these. Will we be seeing music videos for Change and Far Away? Uh, well, Change, there won't be any. Um, I have a lyric, a music video out for, for Change. Hope you've seen that. Mm-hmm. And uh, right now I'm working on a music video for Far Away. Excellent. Definitely. Excellent. Because yes. I've seen some of the pictures on your Instagram. Yes. And certainly yes. just what I see is like, okay, this is going to be the usual like high level quality you Oh, thank you. <laughs> was that was thank that like you. always the case where you would really go so far out? You would hire a full like production team, actors, and dancers for the videos. Oh well, it's been quite different because uh, with um, with uh, the painting, you uh, if you noticed and if you remember, I was just alone. Uh, well, the 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 photographer, the the video maker was quite professional, but I did everything on my own. And I actually did my own makeup, which is actually very uncommon of me to do that. So um, so sometimes, depending on on how everything works out. Well, I had only one guy, and he was a friend, so it wasn't anybody that that I had to pay or anything. Um, and with you are beautiful. I had amazing, uh, you know, an amazing team, makeup artists, and and everything. Beautiful costumes. Uh, the same with um, all right, which I was also alone there, but I had a very good production uh, dress code and everything. Uh, but with 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 far away, I really went a little extra mile. <laughs> Um, I had dancers and I had extras as well. And I had, um, I had a makeup party. I have, I had everything and I even had uh, a venue. (laughs) So let me not reveal a lot. Uh, But, but uh, we had the whole package and, and to be honest with you, these were all people that wanted to contribute to uh to the whole thing i mean i have an actress colleague who came in and uh played a role on this and that i'm so very grateful i had very good people so i'm I'm really looking forward to this and i wanted it to be um very energetic as the music itself you know that's why the dancers i you know we worked a bit with choreography and we had a lot of fun Hmm. and do you usually do all your own choreography Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Most of the time. Yes. I, I have never had anybody to come and do my choreography before. So, yeah. Wow. It's very cool. So, so you're obviously very, very involved with the whole process. Yes. A lot. A lot. A lot. Even uh, the editing part. I'm very, very, very involved. You know, the storyline, the, sp- the storyboard, everything from scratch. The costumes, what colors I want, what color theme I want, how I want to do my makeup, how my look should be very involved with everything. Now, the color schemes and the dancing, is that common for artists where you live? No. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. No, 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 no. I mean, I, I live in Denmark and, and uh, Denmark is a Scandinavian country. Um, 
And, and well, coming from Africa, I always have that side of myself, even, even though I've been living in Scandinavia for many, many years, I never forget my roots. So I always try and be who I am, um, be authentic and, and really um, mix whatever I feel is fine for me. And actually whatever fits the theme of the song. Uh, and, and this time Far Away is, is very much African inspired. So we went, I went all the way, you know, with, with, a, with a lot of color. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. Let's talk about Far Away because I absolutely love the vibe of this tune. It's so just like pulse pounding. It's, it's definitely a very good like summer club beat. Do you think that this kind of reflects how you're feeling now that we're kind of like emerging from the time of the pandemic? We're planning tours and people are doing shows again? Yes. Far Away um, is definitely a life force for me. It's like um, being free again and, and just being, you know, free with your body, free with, with life. It really fits, uh, into, into this, this new, the, the summer that we have now in, in Scandinavia, because this is like the first summer where we haven't been like in a lockdown and we actually have, have had a free way of living for a couple of months and we are just like living our lives again. So, I think that uh, that it really fits well. And you know, African music generally are very much joyful, like happy music. The rhythms and, and the beats are, are always so joyful. And, and I wanted that to be um, the theme of the song, you know, the rhythmic part, because Anthony worked a lot on the rhythmic part to really make it so much alive so it could really lift the whole song. Uh, you talked earlier about going back to your roots. Uh, could you give some examples about how we kind of hear that in the music? And as a follow-up question, is this kind of a new thing for you where the music is reflecting of your background? Uh, we're using the marimbas, the marimba sound on, on this particular one. So already there, you cannot go wrong that this, this has an African vibe to it. Um, well, I have I have done... Some kind. I've been featured on uh, on uh, South African producers' uh, albums before, so actually it's not quite a, a new new thing, but it's a new thing when it comes to my own production, my own, own album, um, and wanting to do that out of my own self. Um, and I actually, well, the house thing, Afro house thing, is not really uh, quite new for me. But what is what is new is that I I chose to actually show try and show a side of me that is usually not seen, like the dance part of of because I grew up with a lot of dance in my life. I could dance before I could sing, you know. <laughs> so um, so I just wanted to have that as well. Um, I don't know if that answered your your question. You did, yeah, you did. Properly. All right, yeah, you did. Yes. You did. Um, okay. You know, what does it mean to you to really include your background in the music, given given uh, where you live? Oh, oh, wow. Um, I mean, I mean, where I live, even 
not only talking about the African background, if you're talking about my musical background where I feel most comfortable, which is also like in the soul and the jazzy kind of thing. Um, I've been, it's not an easy place because um, it's very limited. Uh, many people do love jazz here, but soul music is like not something that really is like anything special here anymore. I mean, they do have artists there and there, you know, uh, A-list artists that sometimes do that, but it's not something that they consider um, anything special here. Even when you look at the funding part of, of music here, like if you go into a, a music funding site and you actually apply and, and you have to tell them what genre you are, the soul doesn't even exist. So talking about African music, that would not exist at all. <laughs> if the soul doesn't exist, then the Afropod doesn't exist either. So, yeah. But, but regarding the Afro thing, because the Afro beat is exploding all over the world right now. Uh, and of course, uh, we do have Africans in, in uh, Scandinavia, in Denmark, and, uh, and they are trying to, uh, to do their own thing and get this music promoted as much as they can. And sometimes you do hear, you know, Ed Sharon has also done something Afrobeat-like. So only when it's like, you know, stars of that level, then you can hear it on the radio. <laughs> mm, okay. Yeah. Do you ever think about just like moving somewhere where you'll be a better fit from a musical standpoint? Oh, yeah. Uh, that's why I have um, management in, uh, in London. That's why I'm going that direction. And that's why uh, this album is going to have a heavy soul kind of uh, uh, weight because we are focusing a lot on, on, on the, the, the London soul market and we are heading that way. Even my future gigs will be more in London, I guess. Okay. All right. Let's yeah. talk about the future. What's in your future from a show perspective? Oh, right now, um, we are concentrating on the album before getting a lot of, of plans because that is like the ticket to the UK market for me. And um, my manager is planning to get me shows later in, in London when the album comes and definitely the next uh, single, what we are working on right now, actually, as we speak, Anthony and I, we're working on amazing soulful jazz tracks. I mean, we, 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 we've come up with so amazing tracks. So this, this album is, is really um, going to showcase that direction. Um, I mean, it's still going to be eclectic because that's how we all building it up. But most of the songs are really, really going to be on in that direction. I get you. I get you. Yeah. All right. Yes. I'm curious what a live show with you would be like. You know, given yeah. the fact that your music videos have such you know amazing colors and dancing and and, uh, and uh, choreography. Oh. I actually think it's going to be, be very dy dynamic because the music is so dynamic and I love when I'm having a whole band, I would not, for instance, um, I would, I would like, like a, a song like Far Away, right? Um, 
and change. They would, of course, be having the whole like sound thing that you kind of hear on, 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 on the recordings. But there will be songs like You Are Beautiful, which I've already done, you know, songs in that direction that will be having more those acoustic kind of very intimate sound mm -hmm. to it. So I love playing. I am going to play with, with dynamics in music, uh, dynamics in, in, in uh, using all the whole instrumentation and having dances and having huge backing vocals and then going into minimal, you know, and all of that in between that. So I wanted to represent my, uh, my own fragments as I'm trying to uh, portray on um, fragments of my soul because I have all these very different um, sides of myself, even from a musical point of view. I really want to see your shows now. I really want to. I really want to like get out there and check out your yeah. shows just just for like that experience alone. Absolutely, you yeah. should <laughs> oh, get get me get me on the get me on the first plane out there. I'm I'm done. Oh yeah, I'm done. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now we mentioned this earlier, but of course you have your forthcoming album, Fragments of My Soul, and these singles have all been kind of like kind of like uh, leading up to it. But what would you say is the overall sound of the, of the album the overall sound is the soul sound that you haven't heard yet and uh, I'm, I'm i mean i'm so i'm actually so very excited because the last few uh three to four weeks we went back to the writing process because we weren't we weren't satisfied with uh the soul productions that that we had so we went back and anthony just spit out one track after the other that is just amazing. So we, we've done like, um, I think we are up to five or six new soul tracks um, that are really, 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 really good. And I don't know, some, something, was, something magical was happening between the both of us because when I got myself to, to do the melodies, they just, became like, wow, this is like, I, I, I guess it's because the music is just so good. So I, I just had to deliver the best also from my side. Mm. Um, so um, that's, that's the whole, whole theme of, of this album. It's going to be very rich and soulful. And, and we want every track to have its own wow factor. Yes. Mm -hmm. All right. When is the album coming out? Do we have any kind of release date planned? Oh, that's a conversation I'm always having with my manager. <laughs> is it done yet? Is it done yet? Why is it, why it's not done yeah. yet? When's it not done yet? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But we are hoping that this fall. Excellent. Yes. Excellent. Well, I, yeah. I, I certainly look forward to that. And folks, you can definitely uh, check out uh, Pearlcutten, C-U-T-T-E-N.com. For more information, you'll find all the links there. Follow her Instagram. It's got it. Uh, it's got some amazing pictures, great vocals, great music as well. And Pearl, looking forward to the next uh, conversation. Absolutely, me too. Always. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. Okay, everyone, that brings this episode to a close. You can follow the show on Facebook under Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram under Citywide Max. Get at me at citywidemax at yahoo.com and check out their show wherever you find podcasts, as well as every Saturday at 10 p.m. on Boston Free Radio. 
To close things out, I've got Pearl's two new singles, Change and Far Away. As always, keep those ears open.